If you have a way to see God's Word this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Today we begin a new series, and uh, this series will last about five weeks, and some of you are probably wondering, how in the world can you make this type of series five weeks? Uh, we're not talking about fi financial bondage every week, but we are talking about the matter of finances. Now, Jesus... When you really put it down and you look at the parables, you look at everything he said, spent a lot of time talking about finances, stewardship, what it means to, to God, the things he's blessed you with, what is his intent for those things. And the first thing that uh, we're going to look at this morning is the bondage. But before we get to that point, I want us to, to understand there's some basic biblical principles found in God's Word concerning finances. Now, these are not on your outline. I just kind of want to introduce this series with these thoughts. Now, having money or wealth is not wrong in and of itself. That's, that's not wrong. When you look at someone who, who has means, you don't sit there and judge them and say, well, they've got means or it must be up to nothing or no good or whatever. Well, that's not the case. When you look in the scriptures, you're going to see that many people mentioned in scriptures were wealthy, especially when you go to the patriarchs and you start looking at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You come to the New Testament. Some of the main people, when it came to financing the whole ministry of the gospel, came from some who were very wealthy. The Bible, however, says those who are wealthy... There are probably many more warnings to them than any other group mentioned in the Bible, however. So that wealth can turn on you. But having wealth is not wrong in and of itself. Next, those who have wealth are not to be given better treatment or privilege. In James chapter 2, it clearly talks about the fact that those who have means shouldn't be lifted or have favoritism or privilege above those who do not. It's interesting that the Bible talks a lot about the fact that we're all on equal footing when it comes to God himself. The rich, the poor, doesn't matter the race, doesn't matter where, we're all on equal footing when it comes to that. And that's what the church should look like also. Another thing as it relates to the, me personally is this, and I've told, if you've been around here any length of time, you know this, I don't know how much you give. I, let me tell you why, because I don't want to mess up the scripture as it relates to how I deal with you. I, I don't want to know how much you give. I know how much I give. I know what God's expecting of me and what he's called me to do. But to say, do I know what you get? I don't, I don't know what you get. Now, some of you may say, well, maybe you do. You can hold us accountable. I really don't because I'm sure I'll be disappointed with some of you. Just to be honest with you. <laughs> but, but the point is, the point is this. We've got to be careful that we, when it comes to money, that money is not the object that brings dividers into us or causes us to sin. We, we've got to stay away from that. Another thing is this, those with wealth are not to seek security from it. Our trust comes from the Lord. Believers are not to make the pursuit of wealth their highest ambition in life. A believer's highest ambition should be godliness, truth, and excellence. And we'll see that in just a moment. And then lastly, all believers should use their money, what God has given them, 
for eternal purposes when it comes to how God has, has, has blessed you, the resources he's given you. He has a plan for those things also. So I want to start with 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is telling Timothy about those who have means. He's literally talking to two groups. He's talking about those who want wealth and those who already have it. Okay, And in verses 6 through 10, he talks about those who desire to be rich. And then in verses 17 through 20, he talks about those who are already rich. Now, let me just tell you who you are, no matter who you are in this room. 10%, listen, if you make what is called the average income, okay, as a family, your family has the average income of those here in America, you're in the top 10% of those who have wealth. How many of you, that just blows your mind? It's true. You're very wealthy when it comes to the rest of the world. So who could we put into this equation? Put almost all American families in this equation. And so when he talks about those things, because think about it. We're a nation of indulgences. We're a nation that has not only needs met, basic needs. We have a lot of wants and desires that pan out in our lives as it Much more than the rest of the world. So here's what he says in verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. He basically says when you have godliness mixed with contentment, it's going to help you have the proper perspective to your life. And then he says in verse 7, if you don't have the proper perspective, get this. For we brought nothing into this world. How many of you know that? And it is certain we carry nothing out of it. According to the great theologian here at PCC, Gary Marburger, (laughs) it all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. The moment we take our last breath from this world, it all goes back in the box. We're not taking it with us. Any any of you ever seen a a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse? Yeah, never seen that. But, but one thing we notice is this, that, that once those things are gone, they're gone. It goes on in verse 8, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. He's talking about the fact that most of us have our basic needs met. But those who desire to be rich, you stand a chance to fall and temptate into temptation and a snare. Now, the word snare literally means that there's someone intentionally trying to sabotage what you're after. And we know that comes from the enemy. And so the pursuit of wealth can lead many into temptations, unhealthy temptations. And there could be a trap associated with the pursuit of wealth. And it says, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It can literally lead to ruin the pursuit of wealth. And then verse 10, we all know this verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now let me tell you about the pursuit of wealth that we find right here in this verse. This is what this is saying. The person in pursuit of wealth, there's never enough. Never enough. There's always the need for more. They resent giving to others because they're on this pursuit of wealth. And many of them have a hard time giving to others. They live with great anxiety, many of them, because they're afraid they're going to lose what they already have. 
And they may even sin to get that wealth or to keep that wealth. And that's where the temptation comes in. So when we have the love of money, we can fall prey to every bit of this. And then he goes on and says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through many sorrows. He's basically saying that the love of money has allowed some to move away from the faith, and the fact that they moved towards wealth, it didn't meet the greatest needs in their life. Look at how he's saying that. In their greediness, it pierced them, and they had many sorrows as a result of following the path of the highest ambition of their life is wealth, and it led to sorrow. How many of you ever heard the rich talk about the curse that money can have on people? I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life, Tina and I, we didn't have anything. We had to borrow money for our first TV, and my father had to sign off on that. <laughs> I mean, we, we, the first car we drove, some of you may say, well, that was an expensive car, a $500 VW Bugs, 1973. It was called a semi-automatic. I don't know if you know what that is, but those are fun. There's no clutch. You just kind of move the gear shift, and it, it's ready to go, you know? And, and I remember the greatest thrill to that car, actually, there were two. The greatest thrill of that car was to be able to sit at a, a stoplight beside the person and then kick it into that gear but have the brake on, you know? And that th the back end of that thing would just pop up. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's ready to go. Of course, it's not going anywhere. The second thing great about that car is it had a hole in the floorboard in the, passenger, I mean, in the, in the back seat. So if any of you were interested in any kind of roadkill, it wouldn't be anything to be driving the car and just reach behind you and grab whatever you want to off the highway. I mean, I mean it was the perfect car. No, I'm just kidding. But, but again, what I'm saying you know, is the fact that many have said that the pursuit of wealth is not what they thought it was. They realize it wasn't the highest ambition. Cornelius Vanderbilt said this, the care of millions is too great and there's no pleasure in it. How many of you at least would like to try to come to that conclusion? <laughs> I mean, I, when I read stuff like this, well, I won't mind giving it a try, you know, that kind of thing. J, uh, J, uh, John D. Rockefeller said this, the poorest person I know is the person who has nothing but money. Nothing but money. King Solomon, remember what he wrote in Ecclesiastes? He said, I tried everything this world had to offer. And by the way, he, he had the means to make anything happen he wanted to happen. And it brought vanity to his life. There was no satisfaction. There was no self-fulfillment. It, it wasn't what he thought it was going to be because that was his pursuit. But then we come to this. And, and here's what we need to understand. The bottom line is this. Having little or much money can bring bondage. Having little can bring bondage. Having much can bring bondage. And does not necessarily bring a person to joy, contentment, or fulfillment. That's what we learn from these verses. But then Paul writes in verse 17, those who are already rich, command those who are rich in this present age, in, in, in this place that we live, this earthly domain, okay, that's what he's talking about there, not to be haughty. Don't think you're all that. Okay, 
nor to trust in uncertain riches. Don't put your full trust in what you have accumulated or have. Don't do that. That's a mistake. But put your trust where? In the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He's talking about those who have been trusted with much. Verse 18, here's what he tells them. Let them do good, do good with those things. It's in the context of that. That they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So those who have wealth, do good by that wealth. Let, let there be something that comes of that. And what, what is the greatest way to spend wealth? Look at verse 19. Storing up them for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He's talking about the fact that you're living your life in the context of this domain of the world. You've been given much. Much is expected. It's not just for you to lay up those things that are eternal. Right now, I want to ask you a simple question. What are you doing with your finances that has eternal value? That has eternal value. He Basically, that's what Jesus was really asking of us in those parables. What, what, what are you doing to use those things that God's blessed you with to move forward the kingdom of God or that has eternal value? Now, I want to, that's me setting this series up. Okay, I hadn't even started the sermon yet. How many of you just feel so blessed right now? <laughs> but that's how I want to start. I want us to dilute all that we, I just said over these next several weeks. The first thing I want to talk about, however, is what I would call financial bondage. Those who just have a difficult time with finances. So look at the introduction on your outline. Few things cause more problems, difficulties, worries, and stress than being in financial bondage. 64% of all marriages argue about money, while 54% of all divorces are caused, many say, by financial tension. Finances is a big deal, even in the closest of relationships. Now, when looking at money management, God's way, you've got to look in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, in many of those chapters, is addressing his young sons. Get the picture. He's there, wisest man who ever lived, based on what we've learned in Scripture. He's got his sons. And by the way, we know how many wives he had. He's probably got a lot of sons. And he's sitting there, and he's literally instructing them in wisdom. And that's what the book of Proverbs, most of it, really is. And so he's sitting there. It explains to us how to handle the problems of life, including financial problems. It addresses debt as one of the biggest blessing blockers and bondage makers. Debt does that. It has its potential. Now, let's talk about debt. Debt, there's really two types. There's secure debt and there's unsecured debt. Secure debt would be your home. Your home. That is a secure debt. Okay, how, why is that? Because you can sell this, now, provided the market doesn't turn too sharply, but you can sell this and take care of the debt. You, you see what I'm saying? So that's what you call secure debt. However, there's something called unsecured debt, and that would be basically the Bible in what it's trying to say about unsecured debt. It, so when it talks about debt in Scripture, really what it's talking about is unsecured debt, unsecured debt. 
not secure debt. Because secure debt, all you got to do is sell something and you're out of debt. It's really talking about unsecured debt, all right? But even in our secure debt, we need to be wise. I'm going to show you some practical stuff, okay? Some of you are like, I didn't know I was coming to a financial seminar. Well, I'm going to show you some things that are very practical, okay? Uh, go to the next screen here. There's something that we have. You have the terms, the loan amount, the rate, and the interest paid. So there's two things. I want to compare two things. Go ahead and put both of them up there. You have a 30-year mortgage, let's just say, of $200,000, okay? This shocked me when I looked this up a couple of days ago. The rate on a 30-year mortgage right now is 7.2%. Now, there may be a banker in here say, no, it just fell another quarter. Well, we're going to use this number, okay? Uh, so, so the interest you'll pay on that loan for 30 years is $287,000. That's a lot. 15-year mortgage, 200000 6.2. That's what the So you get a whole interest point, basically, a percent, 126000 Now, I don't know about you, but both of those interests look high to me, <laughs> But, but again, this is a, a secure debt, okay? And so when you look at this, now, here's, here's what we need to understand. When you go to the bank, the bank wants to loan you as much money as possible for the longest time possible. You do know that, right? They're not shooting for you to be debt-free necessarily, okay? And so what you see here is the fact that a banker, you go to a banker, don't ever do this. Don't ever go to a banker and say, well, how much can we afford? How much house can we afford? Man, they'll set you up. They will. And they're not taking anything in consideration. Now, listen, if you're a banker here this morning, <laughs> some of y'all, I know you see it as a ministry. Praise God for you people, but there's very few of you, okay? But anyway, <laughs> but, but the point I'm trying to make is, is the fact that the bank is a business that's trying to keep its business prosperous. That's the reason they have some of the nicest buildings in town, right? And, and so what they're trying to do is move you towards a lot of money. They want to put a lot of money. They want to give you a lot of money, okay? And, and so when you begin to look at all this, you'll see that you're the one that needs the plan. Don't trust it with the banker. You need the plan. Okay? And when you make these big decisions, I tell, when I do premarital counseling, I tell young couples this all the time. When you do, when you look at your finances, you got to look at things like this. How many of you looked at this before you bought your first home? I didn't. Only thing I wanted was, what can I afford? How many of you were mostly like that in your first house? Well, what can I afford? Okay? So you see how practically, but that is secure debt, and you can still get in a lot of trouble. Next is unsecured debt. The average American family is carrying unsecured debt of, go ahead and put those on there, over 14,000 credit card, 58,000 student loan, 31,000 automobile. This is unsecured debt. Now, some of you think your car's special. <laughs> when you drove it off the lot, it lost a minimum of a third of its value. For you car dealers here, I didn't mean to offend you in any way. <laughs> But what I'm trying to say is we've got to pay attention to this. Some of you are looking at these numbers and saying, hey, we're doing pretty good, aren't you? Some of you are. And then some of you are like, man, we got some work to do. But the, the point is this. This is the kind of debt that can lead to financial ruin or financial bondage. And so basically, I want to give you some tools to help you to get out of debt and to stay out of debt. Okay? Get out of debt, stay out of debt. How many of you remember Larry Burkett? Some of you have been Christians for a long time. He wrote a lot about this stuff, okay? Then Dave Ramsey comes along. 
He takes Larry's stuff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, the, but Dave Ramsey now is the guy speaking of all this. And there's some good, good information out there that can really, really help you. Tina and I are our own story. We've been to the depths of financial bondage. I, I'm just going to tell you, I, I, I remember working all night at Harris Teeter. I, I worked in the grocery business for 11 years, and, and uh, we would work at night uh, and put things on the shelf and all that fun stuff. And I remember about 11 o'clock in the morning, there's a door, uh, the doorbell rings. Tina's at work. Doorbell rings. I go to the door, and the bank shows up. And they wanted to take my car at that point. I've been there when the repo dude shows up. We, we've been there. I didn't give him the car. <laughs> I said, we'll work terms out. I, I knew enough to not give him the car. And so we were able to work things out. We've been there when we've made a, a we live so slimly that we, how many of you ever had a check to bounce? Don't raise your hand, but I did. And, and, and how many of you know that it can lead to other checks bouncing? Once you start one, they bounce all the, all the way home, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, those things, we lived under the strain of all that. It was the worst thing we ever had to go through. I never want to go through that again. Never want to go through that again. And we live a lot of our adult life like that. And some of it was we didn't start our journey as adults the right way. Some of it was it was just tough making it where we felt like we needed to go. And so I've been there. So what I'm telling you is not speaking down to you. I've been there myself. And there's some principles that I learned along the way that I think can help you. So here we go. How to avoid financial bondage. Keep good records. The principle is accounting. Now some of you say, I don't have a degree in accounting. It's simple. Trust me. Just walk with me through this, okay? But the proverb that we will use for that is Proverb 27, look, uh, uh, 23 through 24. Look here on the screen. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever. So basically what is the, the proverb is saying here is knowing, know what you have. What are you dealing with? Okay. So the starting point to financial freedom is being aware of your financial picture or portfolio. You've got to keep track of the sheep. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of the things that God has brought into your life. Now, if you ever said this, I don't know where all the money goes. How many of you have been there? That is, not, that is a very troubling sign. I have no idea where the money goes. Someone has said this, and I love this quote. Money talks. It doesn't talk. It just leaves quietly. <laughs> How many of you know that? And someone has said basically this, ignorant, ignorance plus easy credit equals disaster. And that's where most people find themselves. So four things you need to know when it comes to your accounting. This is not on your outline, but it's free. What you own, you need to know what you own, what you owe, what you earn, and where it goes. You got to know those four things. That is the key to the accounting that you need and the reason you're doing that is to create a budget, to create a budget. So the first principle in avoiding financial ruin is simple. Keep good records. Secondly, not only uh, the, the whole idea of, I'm sorry, knowing what you have, but also plan your spending. And the principle is goal setting. And that's really what budgeting is. 
It's goal setting, okay? So you have to set financial goals, and you got to stick with them. You have to know where you are going by way of a plan. If you don't plan, you know the quote, you plan to fail. That's particularly true with finances, particularly true. So proverb, what's the proverb? There's two of them. The first one's this in Proverb 21. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. A modern translation of that same verse. Plan carefully and you'll have plenty. If you act too quickly, you'll never have enough. So avoiding financial ruin is not determined. This is something you need to understand. It's not determined by how much you make. It's determined by how much you spend. I know right now, and I could bring them up here on stage. I know families that only make fifty dollars to $55,000 a year. And they have more money sometimes left in the bank than people who make $150,000 a year. I know those people. They're the ones, don't you agree, that need to be running the country. <laughs> And it's so true. I mean, they know how to make it work. So when someone says, well, we just don't make enough, I can prove to you that you probably don't need to make a whole lot more. You just need to have a better idea of what spending looks like. Okay? Because it's true. It's out there. So a second proverb, Proverb 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower, many of you know this verse, is servant or in bondage to the lender. Now, what, how does that take shape? Well, there's problems associated with this. Number one, impulse buying. I'm sorry, impulse spending is the way I'm using it. Impulse spending. In other words, I see it and I want it. Anybody been there? See it? I want it. Every commercial, every advertisement is geared to get you to do impulse buying. That means to buy without thinking, without seeing the big picture, without keeping the plan in focus. That's impulse buying. Now, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but not long ago, I, I, I discovered Instagram. The pastors came to us and said, we need to have some kind of presence on social media. Some of them show, uh, chose uh, Facebook. I didn't want Facebook. I said, well, I think I'll try Instagram. I've made two posts in the last four years on Instagram. Some of you who follow me know well, this is a dud. Uh, that, that's me, okay? And my wife actually is the one that created those two posts, okay? But, but, but I, I like to get on there and look at some of the goofiness and craziness and that kind of stuff. And, and lo and behold, you know what? They got commercials even in there, advertisements. I bought something the other day to put on the bottom of my feet to get all the impurities out of my system. I was ashamed to understand that it came from Bulgaria. <laughs> I think I was taken on that. She doesn't know about that, by the way. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, it didn't work. I still, anyway, I'm moving on. Okay. <laughs> There's a word they use to get you to do impulse buying. You know what the word is? Sale. Many people cannot resist a good sale. If it's on sale, I better buy it. And what do we always say? Look at how much I saved. And here's the one that gets me. You know, if you buy another shirt, you'll get this one half off. Right? How many of you have fallen for that one? Well, good. That's nice to know. 
Now, the only one I'll go for that is if the second one's free. I've learned that you only go for the second one free. But anyway, but again, they're looking for all these different things, and their goal is to get you to impulse buy. That is the goal. You need to do it now. How many of you walked into a car dealership? And, 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 you, and I don't know about you, but I plan major purchases way out. And sometimes I want to go look at a car that I might be thinking about buying a year from now. And that salesman comes, again, car dealers, I'm sorry to offend you, but they come up to you. When do they want you to buy that car? Today, before you walk off that lot, right? And that's their training. That's what they're supposed to do. But again, we get in trouble with this type of thing. The myth goes like this. If you don't buy it now, it will cost you more later. Therefore, I need to get it now. But you're not buying in the context of your plan, of your budget. And that's what's going to get you in trouble. Next problem, spend it all spending. Spend it all spending. Some call this living paycheck to paycheck. And, and this is God's IQ test when it comes to finances. Proverbs 21.20, foolish people spend their money as fast as they get it. Anybody been there before? That's what the Bible says. In this, there's no foresight. There's no vision financially. And basically, you know what you're doing? You're just spinning your wheels. Spinning your wheels. Bottom line, plan your spending. The principle, goal setting, budgeting, set financial goals. Set goals as you, how you desire to even live in the future. Young couples will come in for premarital counseling and, and we'll sit there and we'll talk and, and, and I'll throw questions out. And some of, them they, some of these questions they've never talked about. They, some of them have dated for two years or whatever. They've never talked about some things that just blows my mind. One, I remember asking one couple, I said, well, how many children do y'all have? That? Well, we've never really talked about that. And one of them said, I don't want any children. The other one's head whipped around. <laughs> I'd like to have five. I said, well, we're, I guess we're going to go with three. <laughs> so, but, but the point I'm trying to make is the fact that sometimes we don't talk about some very, very important things when it comes to this. And so here's what I'll tell them. And, and many of you have been there, and, and we kind of fell victim to this. The money that you get used to living on is the money you will probably not recede from. How many of you have noticed that? What you're used to living on is hard to pull back, to recede from that, okay? So I told my son, I told my daughter, I told, I told these premarital couples, hey, when you begin to plan a budget and you at some point want to be a stay-at-home mom, you better learn how to budget on, on the dad or vice versa, however your family works. I know stay-at-home dads now, but, but you, you need to think about that. You know, thinking about it with a 30-year mortgage, <laughs> buying way too much house or making all these other things can hinder the overall goal that you want really to, to live by. But no one thinks that way. They never think with the big picture. You have to with finances. To control finances, you must build strong motivation. And your motivation may come with goals and it may come with dreams, what you hope to do in the future. If you don't find motivation to control spending, you'll never control spending. You've got to find proper motivation. Last problem, one-up spending. I think Jonathan actually talked about this not long ago. You've got to have the latest, greatest technology. Now, some of you just got an elbow in the ribs. 
I know. I know some of you. Um, it's okay to have an iPhone that's two years old. It's okay. Three, shoot for five. See what, how that works. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm getting too testy now. Someone said this. When you decide to keep up with the Joneses, just remember that the Joneses are broke also. <laughs> They're broke. So how do you break these types of spending habits? How do you resist that? How do you get relief from financial stress? Budget. Budget. And many of you hate that word. I get it. But budget is, a, is simply a word for financial spending or planned spending. You ought to have a budget. If you don't, you're headed towards chaos. And now here's what's interesting. A budget tells your money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went. A budget only works when there is intentionality and discipline. Got to have discipline. Next, save for the future. The principle is safe. Proverbs 21. There is a desirable treasure in all. There is desirable treasure in all in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. Modern translation, the wise man saves for the future. Okay? Now, I want you to think about this. This kind of blew my mind when I found out this. The average Japanese who lives in Japan, of course, saves about 25% of their income. How many of you just admire that tremendously? The average European, European, 18%. Guess what about America? Less than 5% of their income they save. Someone has said this, I'm going to live within my means even if I have to charge it. <laughs> and that's how many Americans live. Second proverb associated with this, Proverbs 13, wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. He's talking about those who have an honest savings. He's talking about those who save in such a way that God can bless. God can bless that. You need to set financial saving goals, short term and long term. Many of you realize, I guess unless you're a state or, or a county employee, there's no more pensions for most of us. Guess where retirement falls? Falls solely on you who have to save that. Okay? So saving for the future looks different for people in different seasons of life. For some of you right now, if you say, okay, we got to get our finances in order. Your season may be you need an emergency fund. For other people, it may be you're saving for a down payment on a house. For others, you may be saving uh, to, to, to send your kids to college, if, if that's something you've cho chosen to do. Some of you require savings for, require, for retirement. You're in that season. Saving must be part of all successful budgeting. Next, how to enjoy financial bondage? No, <laughs> how to avoid financial bondage? Enjoy what you already have. And that principle is this. We're going to talk about this in the future. Contentment. Contentment. This principle is by far the most difficult because it goes against every message we hear in our culture. Learn to be content. Proverbs 21, 17. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil, that's indulgences and luxuries, will not be rich. Okay? Things never permanently satisfy they bring happiness for a while, but you know it as well as I do, and it just wears off. 
We need to learn to be content with what we have. And, and here's what we think. Having more will make us happier. It doesn't necessarily mean that. The writer of Hebrews says this. Be content with what you have. I, I love this quote. Your yearnings will always exceed your earnings. That's a good quote. And so we got to be careful with this. So why is contentment so necessary? I don't know about you, but when we started learning the value of contentment, I'm just going to tell you, a lot of the anxiety went away. The hecticness of life went away. And it's one of those things we've got to, you got to be aware. Next, how to avoid financial bondage. Give back to God. The principles give. Tithing is the principle of giving our first 10% back to God. Now, what does, what does he say, what does he say gives 10% to him? What, what does all that mean? Why would he desire that? We especially see it in the Old Testament. He, God wants a tithe to represent something in your heart. Now, think about what you do many times. The thing that we're constantly aware of is the condition of our finances. We're constantly evaluating it. We're trying to earn it. We're trying to make it. We're trying to save it. We're trying to, we think about it a lot. We're trying to invest it. And so basically, for many in our culture, our money or, or what we have defines us. But the question is this. It can define us in a great way if we allow it. And the great way is, to, is the fact that we're generous, that we follow the heart of God as it relates to our finances. And we have to find that. So the proverb here is found in Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your possessions. How are you going to do that? With the first fruits of all your increase. He gets what's there. I mean, the treasure principle. He's the highest treasure. What we desire for him. And then why would we do that? So that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats would overflow with new wine. A paraphrase. Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income and he will fill your barns. How many of you need your barn filled? <laughs> That's just a principle. So we see this in God's word. So where's this leading us? Whatever you put God first in, God has promised to bless. Now, y'all, I'm not speaking, please understand, this ain't prosperity preaching. There's no guarantees. Listen, some of the greatest people that I know had very little. But they were still known for their generosity. They were still defined by their generosity. Some of you know those people. And so it's not all of a sudden those with wealth are the ones who've been blessed the most necessarily. No, that's not necessarily it. Did you know the enemy can bless you? Oh, yeah. He can bless you mightily. And, and sometimes he'll do that. And the reason he does it is to take your eyes off of God himself. So what, which of these principles are you struggling with? Keeping good records, planning your spending, saving for the future, enjoying what you already have, or giving back to God. I believe all must be in place to keep, to keep from financial uh, bondage. And here's the application. And this is something that every person that I read, including in the secular world, I read in the secular world when it comes to finance. And here's what you'll find. Even they say this. Give 10 to 15% of what you have. Even in the secular world, you hear this said. 
give, be known for your generosity. Save at least 15%. And that means you're going to need to learn to live off 70 to 75%. Now, some of you, when I gave you that, you're like, okay, that rules us out. There's no way this is happening. But here's what I want you to do. This is how we finally wound up getting to where we needed to be. We did it in stages. But guess what? There was a plan to get to these percentages. You got a plan. Everything you do with finances requires a plan. If you're not at these percents, you don't write it off. You create a plan to get to those percents. You have a goal. You have a dream to get to that point. It all takes tremendous planning, intentionality, and discipline. So on the, de- on the desk in the back, there's uh, green sheets there. And it basically has the idea, it's the conclusion, moving for, towards financial freedom. Now these are, how many of you heard of Dave Ramsey? Some of you hate the man. I get it. I understand. But, but here's what he says is the best formula. And I, we put it to action. We did in our home. And it really helped us. Number one, set up an emergency fund of $1,000. Okay? Now, some of you are like, okay, dishwasher breaks. Now, what do we do? <laughs> I mean, I know things have gone up, but you got to start somewhere. Step two, pay off debt quickly. Take extreme measures. Sell something. I think Dave Ramsey even says, uh, make the children think they're next on that's going to be sold. No, I'm just kidding. No. But you, you take it seriously. You start with credit card debt. You move to automobile debt. You only owe your mortgage. Once you get to that point where you only owe your mortgage, then maybe you go to step three. Three to six months expenses. You put it away in a money market account. Get some kind of interest. The interest on the money market has gone up recently. Okay. Step four, invest 15% of your income in retirement plans. If your employer matches, begin immediately. Don't wait for step four because you're leaving money on the table, aren't you? You're just leaving money hanging out there. Step five, save for college for the kids. Put savings in a safe investment fund. Step six, pay your home off. Step seven, build wealth and give. I'm just going to be one that will tell you, and there's other people in the room that took the class with us when we did this. Listen, in less than seven years, We were completely out of debt less than seven years because we got serious about what we believe is a wise way to handle what God's blessed us with. And it's tremendous how that's happened. And so basically the bottom line is this. The goal is to get to the next step as soon as possible without endangering your personal and spiritual health as well as the health of your family. Now, this is not talking about your, your husband not agreeing with you and you walk, you know, smack him or whatever. <laughs> this is talking about you need to get there, but you got to look at the wholeness of who you are in your family. And you can't do anything to endanger some of that. you got to be careful with that and how quick you move. So lastly... Is there any way to have real lasting satisfaction? The Bible tells us it will only come from God himself, not your finances, not what you think you've accumulated. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaching the most famous, one of the most famous sermons on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires, for then they will be fully satisfied. Satisfaction only comes in a relationship with Jesus. It only comes that way. And the fulfillment of what he does in and through you through, by way of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you, that will lead you to the safest place 
of satisfaction. It won't even, listen, I know people who are debt free who still have no satisfaction in life because it's got to be pointed to Jesus. He's the only one that can bring that to your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you now and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for who you are. Lord, I look around this room and I know we have people at different places, different stages of life when it comes to finances and, and where they are. Father, I just pray you'll help them. I know at times it seems hopeless. Lord, you know we've been there. But Father, we just pray you'll work in their life. And Lord, we look forward to these next weeks as we uncover your plans for our finances. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Teresa, come on up here real quick. I have, we have one announcement we want to...